We are in Luke chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 855. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah on the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fell, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were to be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. God has always had a people. It's part of the theme of what I want to talk about during this Christmas season. He's always had a people, and there's been a characteristic of those people. They have been a waiting people. My heart has been stirred in these days to, to just ask God to help me wait better. To help me be a pastor of people who wait better. Waiting. Waiting has lots of promise. The scripture says, No eye has seen, no ear perceived any God like you who acts. And we have inserted the word works, which I don't think does any violation to the text, who works on behalf of those who wait for him. My prayer is that over these days, over this Advent season now, what's left of it, that God will just show us through the lives of three different sets of people. Today, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Next week, Mary and Joseph a bit. And then Simeon and Anna 
what it looks like to wait. What God wants us to do and be as we wait. Let's pray together this morning. Father, help us. Help us to be awaiting people. Help us to know what it looks like as we wait and what we ought to be as we wait, Father. You've always had a people. You've always had awaiting people who rested in your promises, in your word, what you had said to the best of their understanding. They waited, confident that you were a God who fulfills your promise. Lord, I pray that you will just open our eyes to see more of the glory of what you have done in this incarnation, in this coming of your Son to us. And it will strengthen us to wait better, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at the text with me this morning. Look at what we've just read for a bit. And we're going to look another place a bit. But it says in the days of Herod, here in the text, in a, at a point of time, it was in that time when that Herod was on the throne, which was 400 years since Israel had heard from God. That's the reason in the days of Herod, why we're given a time frame, because we were to feel the weight of the fact that, that in the past God had spoken, we learned this in Hebrews in the series we're in, had spoken through the prophets at various times and in many ways. But 400 years before the time of Herod, God stopped. He stopped speaking through the prophets. There had not been a word from God for 400 years. People recognized when a prophet spoke. They realized it was, thus saith the Lord. But it had not been heard. And yet there continued to be a people who waited in that time frame. That's a long time. You think about 400 years. It's a long time. No word from God. They hadn't heard anything. It says that Zechariah in that period of time, in the days of Herod, was chosen by Lot. Lots were cast for priests to go into the temple twice a day. And... Uh, one of those times they were to burn incense and this incense was to be symbolic of the sacrifices being a sweet aroma to God that were made in the temple. So he went into the inner courts of the temple. The people are outside praying. Zechariah is inside praying and burning incense in the temple. Only once in your lifetime could you experience that and this was Zechariah's time to be there doing this. And in the midst of that, in the days of Herod, when the lot was, lot was cast on Zechariah, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, appeared to him. And he speaks. And he says, Your prayers have been heard. Now, the logical thing we should ask is, What prayers? What prayer was Zechariah praying? Now, it could have been past prayers. It could have been for his, him to have a son, which he had long past quit praying. He knew there was no possibility of that. So he wasn't praying this day for a son.
because he knew those days were long past. I don't think he was praying that. I don't think that's what the the angel was referring to here in this text. Because of the response, because of the context, because of what comes later in Simeon and Anna. I think what Zechariah was praying for was not a son, but the prayers that had been heard were the prayers he was uttering even as he was in that temple area, as he was praying for the consolation of Israel, that he was praying that God would do what God had promised to do for his people, Israel, as he was making sacrifice in the temple. Now, why do I think that? Go back with me a ways. Go back with me actually to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. I want to read to you the last chapter of Malachi and just a little more than that, actually beginning in chapter 3. And the context of Malachi is a context in which we hear some interesting things said to the people of Israel, the people of Judah actually here. Again and again in this context, it's the idea that comes across that, that God is slow. That, In fact, in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 3, it says that God says to the people, you have said, it is vain to serve God. It is vain to serve God. In other words, they're getting tired. A people who were waiting here were getting tired and weary. And they were beginning to to verbalize some things that were not healthy for them to verbalize. And then we find in verse 14, or verse 16, these words, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They kind of came to their senses. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. The Lord says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him, then once more you shall see. In other words, the time is coming. You think it's long, but it's coming. Those promises are going to be fulfilled. There's a day coming. In fact, he goes on to say that. It says, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And then in verse 4, chapter 1, or chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, And behold, the day is coming. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oxen, when all the arrogant, all the evildoers will stumble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, I think you could say, but for you who are waiting, the sun of righteousness, sun as in sun in the sky, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healings in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree and utter destruction. That was 400 years 
before the time of Herod. That was 400 years, the last word from God that was heard. And now, Gabriel stands in the inner courts of the temple and says to John, or says to Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. I think it was prayers about this. It was prayers about the day that God had promised that would come. The day, and now you have to understand here, Zechariah didn't understand the cross. He didn't understand that there was going to be a period of time before this nationalistic kind of freedom was going to come. He saw, he saw God's um, coming and, and his judgment coming as, as, as establishing Israel and establishing the people, establishing God's people. He didn't see the cross before that. So all that he's talking about is this kind of deliverance that God has promised for his people. And as he hears it, I think, in the, or he remembers it in the words of Malachi, he's praying it in the temple. Now, why do I think that? Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, a little later. You read about the account of Gabriel coming, or we read about the account of Gabriel coming to Zechariah. But then we need to look at Zechariah's prophecy. We need to look at what he said, what Zechariah uttered after John was born. At the very end of that, the very conclusion of that, you see down in verse uh, 76. Let me read 76 through 79. And it says, And you, child, this is, this is Zechariah speaking about John, his son. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. And I think John or Zechariah was recollecting this description of Elijah in Malachi. This idea, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And in the New Testament, we know that that Elijah was John the Baptist. It reckoned it to be John the Baptist. There was a sense in which Zechariah was understanding that his son John was this promised Elijah that was going to come and was coming and had come. But a little later, why I tie it to that text, read on. It says a little farther. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins, it says about John. And then it says, because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That's not speaking of John anymore. That's not speaking of his son. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. That's speaking of the son of righteousness that is promised in Malachi, where it says, but for you who fear my name, who wait for me, the son of righteousness, the sun is in the sky, the son of righteousness shall rise with healings in its wings, which is the son, S-O-N, which is Jesus Christ. He will be the light he will bring light to the darkness. And he recollects that in his account of his declaration and his praise after John is born. So that leads me to believe that when Gabriel said, your prayers have been heard, he was talking about prayers that Zechariah was uttering as he was in there ministering and burning incense in the actual temple itself. God had made a promise 
Zechariah was a man who knew that promise, was waiting for that promise, had, knew that it had been 400 years since anything more had been de- said or done about that promise. In fact, in many ways, in that 400-year period, it was pretty dark. And it looked at times and caused people to say, it is vain to serve God. But Zechariah was not one of those. He kept serving him. He kept waiting. He kept faithfully and was ready when his call came in the temple to go in. He continued to wait 400 years and all of that. He was waiting for the consolation, waiting for the promises to be fulfilled. Now, what can we learn about that? What can we learn about the life of Zechariah and apply to us? How does it apply to us? How does it help us to wait There are several things that I want to see and I hope that we see in this. They come as we look at that account a little farther up, the account that he gives in Luke where he talks about that prophecy. Look with me. I want to walk through it here. I want to look at the things I think that need to be characteristic of waiting people, that are characteristic of waiting people, in fact have been characteristic of God's waiting people through the ages. And they are these kinds of things as we read it. Look in verse 68. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. There is something significant, I think, in that particular declaration. And I think it it needs to be characteristic of a waiting people. One of the things that's characteristic of a people who wait is they have a view of their God as mighty. They see their God as a God that nothing is impossible for him. It was reiterated to Zechariah in the birth of his son John. Again, evidence that we have a God who is a horn of salvation. In the sense, the horn there, it's not talking about a, a horn you blow, but it's talking about the horn on an oxen or a or a large animal, the horn that's the strength of our God. And here, Zechariah declares, you are a strong God. You are a mighty God. You are a God of the impossible. You're a God that can accomplish whatever you set out to accomplish. You're a God that nothing can thwart your purposes. If we're to wait well, if we're to be a people who patiently wait, we have to see our God as the God that he is. That he's a sovereign God who orchestrates his purposes and works out everything according to the counsels of his will. It says, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. What time? God's sovereign timing, God's plan, God's purpose. That nothing thwarted to that time of it fully coming and nothing will thwart it beyond that time of it fully being accomplished. Because God is a mighty God. He's raised up a horn of salvation, a mighty salvation, a mighty God. It goes on to speak in that, it says, in the house of the servant David. Here again, he was was aware of the fact that that this Savior, for, for him, now he's thinking in historical kind of confines, he's thinking about Israel, he's thinking about the national kinds of salvation here, he he doesn't see the cross. You must understand that he, he, it's a mystery to him. It's, it's, it's a great mystery to him. He doesn't even cross his mind at this point. Um, 
he, he just doesn't see it at all. But he does know he has a mighty God. And, and that God, that horn of salvation that has come, has to do with the baby that Mary is carrying and that he will come from the line of David, the Messiah. The Messiah is coming through the line of David. Again, it's because he had a strong idea of the Old Testament. He was waiting, knowing that this, this Messiah that was to come, this deliverer that was to come for the, the nation of Israel would come from the line of David. And then it goes on to say, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. He knew God had promised that, that he would not abandon his people, that he would save them. Again, he didn't understand what that saving totally was. He understood part of it. I mean, one day God will fully establish his kingdom. One day he will fully um, defeat sin and, and, uh, and be done with it. It will be gone forever. And that's the day which you see Zechariah saw. That day when all the enemies were fully gone. He didn't understand that intermediate time of now, the time we're in, the time of the cross. But he knew God had promised that he would do it. He just didn't know all the way God was going to do it. He didn't understand all that the Messiah would mean and all that he would accomplish at this point as he, as he writes it. And in verse 72, it says, To show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. He saw his God as strong. He saw his God faithful to promises and nothing would thwart his promises. But he also saw his God as merciful. If we're to wait well, if we're to wait well, we must know God not only as a God of strength and might, but a God who is merciful. As I was looking at this this morning, I thought of that hymn. You know it well, probably. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning my song shall rise to Thee. And then a little later it says, merciful and mighty. If we're going to wait well, we must know that we have a mighty God, yes, a God who's capable of doing what he's promised to do and what he set out to do and nothing will thwart it. But he's also a merciful God. And here in this context, um, Zechariah knew that God had promised to be merciful, that God had been merciful to a people. And he describes it here and he talks about it here. He says this, The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. That God somehow mercifully was going to do something for his people that that would cause them to be able to live in holiness and righteousness without fear. First characteristic, we need to see God as mighty if we're going to wait. All-powerful. We need to see Him as merciful. It's interesting. It's interesting that He knew God to be merciful, but He didn't understand fully how that mercy would work its way out. He must have, he must have been baffled at times as, how can this God be merciful? How can this God look upon this unrighteous people this, this people who 
says to him what they said in Malachi. It's, it's, not, it's not worth waiting. This God doesn't act. This God doesn't really love us. Again and again, the people of Israel did that, but he, but he knew that God was merciful. Now, now we, and we'll talk about that in a moment, we understand how God can be mighty and holy and merciful at the same time. It has to do with the cross, but he didn't know that. He just rested in it. That God had promised to be merciful, and somehow God would, would be merciful. He would find a way to be merciful to a people who had profaned his name. But here it's interesting how he puts it in terms. It's, it's so amazing that what he writes about here, and we'll turn to this in just a moment, but he doesn't understand the cross. Don't forget that. But he talks about everything that the cross accomplishes. Because here in this text it says, to show mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. And then he talks about what that covenant accomplishes. What that mercy accomplishes, it, it allows people to not be fearful and to serve God in holiness and righteousness. One of the characteristics, I think, of awaiting people um, is that there's always a sense in which, which we needed to come against sin. There's a sense in awaiting people, awaiting people that, that sin is not a good thing. That sin shouldn't be a part of our lives. That we should do everything we can to battle against it and to resist it. Here he knew that. He knew that. That's part of awaiting people. That, that we need to be a people who run after righteousness and run away from sin. He includes the words that we would do it without fear. Um, I think that was a hard concept for Old Testament people to fully get their heads around. It's only as the cross comes up that we begin to understand how we can, we can talk about holiness and righteousness without fear. And we'll come to that in a minute. But you see the progression of a mighty God, a merciful God, a God who somehow helps his people not to be afraid and to serve him in holiness and righteousness. Now, I think the, the, the idea he had, again, is, is devoid of the cross, is what God one day is going to do is going to destroy all the enemies of Israel, all these people who caused the people of Israel to, to not be as godly as they should be, all these people who profaned the God that they wanted to serve. He was going to get rid of them. So his idea is that there would no longer be a fear of our enemies, literal enemies, and there would be nobody resisting our desire to magnify the name of our God. I mean, that's the picture he saw. Because he didn't understand the cross. But it's an amazing picture of what the cross does for us. And really the only way all of that fully can happen is because of the cross. And then he turns to his own son after he declares all of that. He says, and John, you will be the forerunner of this. You will be the Elisha. He understood that. You will bring this, this new thing to us. This sun is going to rise on our darkness. The sun, the literal sun, the light, which is the son of God. The Messiah is going to shine light on our darkness. But now take what we've just talked about and insert the cross. 
Insert the cross. And as we insert the cross as awaiting people now, we don't wait like he waited. We don't wait in an Old Testament context like the people like Zachariah and Elizabeth and like Mary in one sense on one side. She experienced both parts, awaiting in the Old Testament sense and awaiting in the New Testament sense. And then Simeon and Anna. We wait because we see the cross. And actually, we should wait better. Every generation, as it's gone along, should wait better because we see the cross. We see it. We understand it. We understand that we can have a mighty God, an all-powerful God, a sovereign God, that nothing escapes His gaze, including our sin. And yet, He's a merciful God. That's, that's no small thing. That He is all-knowing and holy and mighty and merciful. Merciful and mighty. I've said to you a number of times, for an unbeliever to sing the song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee, that should start terror in an unbeliever. Because the very holiness of God, the very holiness of God, they should run from that. In fact, do run from that. When they really see it, it undoes them. The understanding that God can be that and mighty and merciful together. Only the cross does that. Only the cross brings those two things together. That's the reconciliation of those two concepts. And here, in this is this is what it's to produce. This is what should happen in our lives. This is what should cause us to wait the best. Because as we begin to understand that God can be merciful and mighty both. Mighty and merciful. And it's because of the cross. That cross takes away our fear. The, the cross is the thing that causes us to be able to serve Him without fear. We don't have to bring down His mightiness because if we bring down His mightiness, He's not powerful enough to save us. But we also don't have to raise up somehow our performance and think it's better than it is. We can let Him be merciful. Mighty and merciful because of the cross. And when we really understand the cross, we understand that we don't have to be in fear. When we wait with the cross at the center, fear is gone. So that in truth, we can then serve Him in holiness and righteousness. Not perfect holiness and righteousness, but, but in fact, as the fear is removed, as the fear is removed, we can look into our lives and we can see the sin that's there. And we can go deep in that and let God work in our lives and, and really deal with it because it doesn't condemn us. What happens if, if we have fear is that sin condemns us. And so we won't go very deep. We won't root out very much because the deeper we look and the more we see it in our lives, if we aren't confident that we are accepted by the cross, that fear will cause us not to really go after it as we ought. And we will just cover it over. We will just hide it. We'll just rake it under the, the covers. But the, 
Bible tells us, the scriptures tell us, the, the waiting people, all of this is true, that God is mighty, that God is merciful, that God um, wants us to live without fear and holiness and righteousness, but, but only if we truly see the Messiah for all that he is. Zechariah saw part of it, he didn't see all of it. But yet God somehow helped him to know that this is the God he had, even though he couldn't understand how that God could be that way. And we now can understand how. And so how much more should our foundation be solid? How much more should we have these kinds of characteristics in our lives? One of the things that Zechariah knew, the final thing that he knew, which, which really is, is probably at the top of the list, is he knew his sinfulness. There was a sense in which Zechariah knew that. If you look down in verse 78, as he turns again and talks about that sunrise coming and the darkness coming, it says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide whose feet? To guide our feet in the way of peace. Zechariah knew his own life. He knew his sin. And he knew his need of God to be his Savior. Saving uh, him had to do and tied to the nation of Israel and all of those things. But that's the way it was in the Old Testament, I think. The people there didn't see it all. Remember, I've talked in the, in the study in Hebrews that God, there have been progressions of God's revelation. In the Old Testament, they saw it, but they didn't see it fully. They saw pieces of it and... And here, as Zechariah declares, he, he, he sees lots of it, but the cross. They didn't understand that. They didn't see that. But for us today now, God has spoken in his Son. We have opportunity to see that. And it seems to me that we ought to be the best of waiters. That, that God ought to cause in us wonderful things to to happen for us as we begin to rest in that cross. That's the key. The way to wait is to rest in the cross that causes us to not have to fear. That we can see God as He is. We can know Him for who He is. But we don't have to be fearful. We can, in fact, let Him work in us. Let Him do a work deep within us. It's only the cross that will do that. It's only a proper view of the Messiah and understanding Him that will do that for us fully. It's interesting, this week I was listening, in fact, just a couple of days ago, listening on the radio, and there was a person talking about, um, talking about the Internet a bit, talking about, in fact, what was being talked about, maybe some of you heard it, was talking about how they... Google and all of these kinds of things track your activity on the internet and so therefore as they track your activity there's some suspicion in that tracking of your of your activity on the internet that that certain ads are sent to you and and that certain ads are not sent to you by just the kinds of activities that they see you doing on the internet as you may search different things and one of the things that got talked about in that particular thing was that that about a third, they think as much as a third of the hits on the internet are for pornography kinds of things, for porn sites on the internet. As many as a third of the hits in a day would be for those kinds of things. 
And the whole ramification of that is is uh, what ads might get sent to you. In fact, one of the things that was talked about is that you may not get as many offers for borrowing money because you might not be as as good a risk in that if you are spending all kinds of times in those kinds of sites. And, and the ramifications of what things might be sent to you because you do do that on a regular basis or other things. And the fact of, of porn sites, the idea that you might get all kinds of gambling site hits because you of, of impulses that are hard to control and that kind of thing. You might be more prone to those kinds of things. So whether that's true or not, whether it's right or wrong, one of the things that was amazing to me that was said there is they said that, that, that the most places of all the states in all of our nation where most hits happen, the percentage is the highest of hits on those kinds of sites was the state of Utah. I think most of us would would go from that kind of statement to predominantly who live in the state of Utah. The strong Mormon congregation, a strong Mormon population in Utah. And one of the tenets of Mormonism, one of the things that they will often use in in the propagation of their faith is strong family values. That's a that's a strong proponent that they do. They talk about clean living kinds of things and various things they don't do and don't do and all those kinds of things. Um, but it's interesting. One of the things in, in the tenet of Mormonism is they have a wrong view of Christ. The deity of Christ. The deity of the Son. The, the, the horn of salvation that it talks about here. They don't get Jesus right. And it just reiterates the fact that that the only thing that will produce life without fear and true holiness and righteousness, true um, true Christianity, really, not not that anybody is perfect in any of those things. It isn't perfect righteousness, it isn't perfect holiness. But but you you can't paint that on the outside. It isn't something that's painted on the outside because it comes from the heart. And it's a heart that sees the glory of Christ, that rests in Him and, and begins to see the glory of the gospel that God begins to work in them to produce true holiness and righteousness in their life. This morning, I hope that, that you see how Zechariah waited, that you see some things there that maybe God would speak to your heart and say, do you see God this way? Are you are you viewing this way? Are you resting in what He has done, and and see it come together in the cross? Let me let me take you this morning as we close to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and again just just to read what it says, what the what the text says as the worship team comes and we're going to close in song this morning. Verse one says, "Long ago, at many times and in many ways." God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. We've been in a series in Hebrews. We talked a lot about that. But then it goes down a ways and it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
That's the heart of the issue right there. God sent forth His Son in the last days and His Son came to make purification for sin. That He, in fact, made a way that our sins could be cared for. They could be dealt with. So that the fear of of judgment is gone. And we could live in true holiness and righteousness. That God would help us to live out that kind of life. But it only comes from the sun. It only comes from seeing the sun and resting in the sun. Zechariah, as much as he understood, rested in that sun, rested in that Messiah. But today we have a much grander and more glorious picture and the cross, and we understand that. We can see that. And I hope this morning that, that you're resting in that cross. That's the only place to wait is in the cross. If you're trying to rest and live out this Christian life any other way, you're just painting something on the outside. You have to know the reality of the purification of your sins that takes away fear. produces a life of faith, a true life of waiting well. May God help us. We're going to sing together a song that talks about that waiting. We sang it already once in our prayer response. And I ask you the question, are you waiting around the cross? Do you see it? If not, that God would help you to see it this Christmas season. Let's stand and sing together. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are
I pray that during this Christmas season that that the coming of your Son will be the center of our lives. That we will rest in the fact that He made purification for our sins. We'll know what it is to serve you without fear in holiness and in righteousness. True holiness and righteousness, Father, that is produced by your Spirit dwelling in us. Not something we paint on the outside to impress somebody else. But it comes because we've centered ourselves around the horn of salvation. The merciful Messiah, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. Help us to rest there. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you.